This is our fifth lesson. We're calling it Great Leaders Are Not Born. Uh, hopefully we have not believed the lie that great leaders are born. Certainly there is a measure of things put in every human being. Uh, but often what we call leadership is uh, nothing more than charisma. And to be certain, certain people are more charismatic than others. But charisma is not leadership. And leadership is not charisma. We are to follow leadership and we are to, we are to be leaders. You can be a leader without being charismatic. I don't know if very many generals in the military are charismatic. I just don't see it. I can't see a Pentagon official going into the meeting in the situation with the president and convincing the president because he's got charisma. I don't, I don't see that happening either. So it seems to be only in dumb circles where we would rather follow charisma as in entertainment circles in the church where we would rather follow, follow charisma than leadership. You can have charisma and not be able to lead yourself to, to the job. You can have charisma and not be able to lead yourself on a diet. You can have charisma and have no money in the bank, which means you lack financial leadership. So charisma is not leadership. So let us, let, let's be very clear on that. You can be born with charisma, but I really don't see much anymore people born with leadership. It is definitely something that looks to be learned or instilled as you go along. We're going to prove it with about 15 examples from the Bible. And so uh, we, we say this to encourage you so you don't say in your heart, well, I could never be a leader. Don't say that. God very well has called you, and if he's called you, then you have to be. And the only reason you're not leading is either you didn't know you could or you just don't want to. And if, you're, if your life's going to go further and be better, you've got to learn how to be a leader. You've got to lead yourself to the job early. You've got to lead yourself to do what's expected of you. You've got to lead your kids. You've got to lead your spouse, your wife, that is, not your husband. You don't lead your husband. That makes you a Jezebel. Uh, you've got to lead your employees. You've got to lead your flesh and lead it under. As Paul said, I beat my body daily. I bring it into subjection. So let's look at this curriculum here, and we're going to look at a bunch of Old Testament leaders who did not start off as leaders, and yet their excuses are very American. Because, of course, Americans are carnal and fleshy, and that's what we have in common with every person on the planet, carnal and flesh. God has called every one of us to lead, uh, called to us to some form of leadership. Uh, we will not all be presidents or CEOs, but we must certainly lead to fulfill God's will for our life. You know, if you're just a homemaker, and I don't mean just, because homemaking is a tremendous art, science, and it's lost and it's denigrated in our society. If you're a homemaker, you have much to lead. I honestly believe stay-at-home moms lead way more than dads do. I really believe so. They have more on their table, more on their plate, because the, the working guy, he just goes to the job and does one thing over and over again. It really, it's like a monkey. Here's the banana. Here's the banana. Here's the banana. Mom is at home chauffeuring, cooking, planning, plotting, scheming, disciplining, cleaning the house, taking care of the car, getting the kids off to school, thinking about dinner. That's mom. That's a lot of leadership. Dad, he, he just chink, chink. He just does the same thing. And then he comes home and needs a four-hour rest. Sad little man. Sad little man. Amen. We must certainly lead to fulfill God's will for our life. Do not believe the lie that leadership is a naturally born skill. It is not. Now, you know, some of it might just be having a stronger personality, but that doesn't mean once you've got people listening to you, you know what to do with them. You know, you see it on the playground about the time they're four or five. Now, some of it isn't really leadership. It's just being bossy. Amen. Now, it's, I find it fascinating. Little boys are never accused of being bossy. It's always little girls. You know what I'm talking about? 
And I wonder what mama they learned that from. Or what child on the playground they learned that from who learned it from their mama. It's a Jezebel thing. That's not leadership. That's bossy. That's bossy. If you didn't know, Jezebel is not a good thing to be. First uh, Peter 3 and Ephesians talks about submitting to your own husbands. That's the Bible. It's not feminist, but it is the Bible. And you're to adapt yourselves to your husbands in all meekness and quietness and uh, quiet spirit. Not a quiet mouth, but a quiet spirit, a quiet attitude. And it's a, the Bible says in the sight of God, that's of great value. Amen. All right, you're not liking it. And that's why we have to hit it every couple months in this church because I don't want a church full of Jezebels or feminists. Did you know feminists don't really go anywhere? I mean, they got a Susan B. Anthony on a quarter or a silver dollar. That's as far as they went. All right. Leadership can be learned and developed. So let's look at some Old Testament leaders. And beside each, each one of these, I put kind of the descriptors when we find them in the Bible stories or the Bible uh, chronology, the, the adjectives that describe exactly where they're at. And you won't find the word leadership in any of those descriptors. So we're going to look at several of these. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. Eleven great leaders from the Bible. Consequently, or oddly enough, all of them are found in the Hall of Faith. Excuse me, most of them, not all, most of them are found in Hebrews 11, the Hall of Faith. So let's look at these. Noah, I call Noah inexperienced, inexperienced, but humble. When we find Noah, he's not a leader. What is he? He's just a dad. God does not select him to lead mankind to existence because of his experience. Because what experience did he have for what he was about to do? None. But what, what qualified him to be used of God? Humility. He found grace. Apparently, he was the only man in the entire world that was humble. That lets you know how rare humility can be when sin abounds. He was inexperienced, but he was humble. And that's why God appeared to him and said, you have found grace in my eyes. Now build me a boat. What boat-making experience did he have? None. What boat-making school had he just graduated from? None. What school of biology, zoology, and animal husbandry had he just graduated from? None. So we, we often want to train and train and train and train and train before God can use us. And God's not looking for that. He wants to train you himself. And so he had no leadership experience. He, he was not born a leader. The only thing he had going for him was humility. And a heart that evidently would say, Lord, whatever you want, I'll do. Just help. Noah was mankind's first preacher of righteousness. That's what first Peter calls him. Second Peter, excuse him. God did not select Noah because he was a natural born leader, nor was he selected for his boat building skills. Noah was selected by God because he was humble and found grace in the eyes of God. Every skill necessary to obeying God's command was learned as he went along from preaching to boat building to animal husbandry. That just means handling animals. I mean, how do you get two of every animal? You don't just whistle. He had to go and invent some of this stuff. He had to go and study it. I, I fully believe, the Bible doesn't tell us, but how else would you do it? I fully believe he had to build pens and had to build basically a zoo on his compound and begin to wheel and deal and trade. And, uh, you know, the world is populated for the most part at that time. Can you bring me some cheetahs? I'll trade you something. How else do you get them? And then one man, I like what he said, because they've always made the argument, that's ridiculous, put a bunch of ele elephants on that boat. Now put a bunch of lions on it. How do you keep the lions from eating everything? One man pointed out, it's real simple. You just put babies. 
Just fill Noah's Ark full of baby lions. Fill them full of baby elephants. Really not four, but two. One of each sex. Because we're full-grown animals eat a lot and poop a lot. And full-grown animals, if they're predators, have their predatory instinct. But, you know, you always see the knucklehead somewhere out in Iowa that wants to raise cougar cats. And they're all cute and cuddly till they turn mature and then they maul their owner. Well, they're cute and cuddly while they're cubs. Every animal that's a vicious killer is cute and cuddly while it's a cub. That's what you put on the boat. You know, some of your animals are sexually uh, mature in a few weeks. Some of them it takes six and eight months. Uh, so you, you have a better, uh, a better success rate apart from God, but definitely with God, if you just put baby animals. So he's got to bring all the animals together and study them and let them begin to reproduce and kind of time everything right. Maybe the boat launched in the springtime where all the big kids just squirted out. So you just quickly, quickly, those look like rain clouds. Get the, get the babies, get the babies. And so we always see the pictures of all these massively grown animals marching up two by two. I don't know if that was really how it was. It makes common sense to me, and God's not stupid, but it makes common sense to me. I didn't come up with it. I learned another, heard another preacher say it, to put babies on the ark. So what did he know about babies in the gestation period of a wallaby? Nothing. So he had to learn it. Did God pick him because he understood marsupials? No. God picked him because he understood humility. And he said, Lord, whatever you want me to do, if you'll help me, I'll do it. That's humility. We oftentimes don't even try to serve God because I don't know how to do it. So our don't know how, we already quit because of it. And so therefore we stay in the I don't know how zone. God doesn't pick us because we know how. God picks us because we have a willing heart to learn and get better. All right, next one. Abraham. I'm just showing you leaders aren't born. Anybody ever heard of Abraham? When God appears to him, he's old and wealthy. That's a horrible combination. Because <laughs> it screams quit. It screams retirement. I'm old and I got money. Leave me alone. Your money perish with you, oldie. What a horrible person to pick by American standards. Old rich people. They're rich because they're stingy and they're old so they're ready to quit. But, and though he might have been successful in leadership the first 75 years of his life, we know from the, the text in uh, Genesis 12, he lived in a fortified city. Leading in a fortified city is a lot different than leading as a nomad the next 50 years of your life. So he had to learn a brand new style of leadership. It's one thing to sit in the castle, to sit in a fortified city and just run a business. That's one style of leadership. That's not nomadic chieftain. Because really what he would have become is what we would call a nomadic chief. He would have been the chief of a tribe. That's why they became the 12 tribes of Israel because they came out of Abraham. But he ended up becoming thousands of people strong out of his own loins and out of the loins of his servants and maidservants. And so he was the chief. He was a nomad. We call him a Bedouin. He just traveled around. That was the rest of his life. He went from having a nice, comfortable uh, retirement palace that he knew how to manage, that he knew how to run, that everybody knew what to do to all of a sudden at 75 and his wife's in her 70s, pack it up, we're going. Where? I haven't got a clue, but we're going. Grab our peoples, their property, and let's travel. He had to learn a whole new realm of leadership. When you're old, you want comfort, you want ease, you want to die out your days in pleasure. And God didn't give this man that choice, but he did become the father of our faith because he was willing to step out of his comfort zone and everything he knew 
to obey God. If you're going to obey God, you're going to have to learn to lead. Amen. He, he didn't lead a nation. He became a nation. And it always starts off small and it grows. Abraham wasn't called by God until he was 75 years old. What a way to wake up. Happy birthday to me. God speaking. Yes. <laughs> I want you to leave this place. I just bought it. <laughs> I have someplace better for you. Where? I'll show you when you get there. What? <laughs> Let me turn up my hearing aid. <laughs> he may have led people in a city previously, but he was, he was about to lead people as a nomad indefinitely. He would, have, he would have to learn a new style of leadership if he was going to obey God. He successfully obeyed God, and it brought him greater wealth and an everlasting covenant. We still get to partake of that covenant. The blessings of Abraham come on us. Praise God. Look at Moses. I call him reluctant and fearful. Anybody here reluctant and fearful at times? Sure. Yet this is the kind of people, notice God's not picking winners. He's not picking the MIT grad or the Dale Carnegie grad. He's picking folks that are goofy. They don't really have a lot going for them. And if they have something going for them, God takes them away from what's going for them. Sounds like us. That'll really encourage us because these people were no different than us. Some of the, actually, these people were worse off than us because they didn't know Christ as we do. They never, not, not a one of them had a Bible, and yet they could trust God. Moses, I call him reluctant and fearful. Moses was groomed in Egypt's style of leadership, but it totally backfired. You know, the Egyptian style was take what you want. So we know he spent the first 40 years of his life in Egypt, trained up in all the knowledge and wisdom of Egypt as, uh, as um, Stephen preached before he was martyred for it. And it entered into his heart that he was to be the deliverer of God's people. And he saw a, an Egyptian abusing an Israelite. So Moses, the Bible says he looked this way, then he looked that way, then he rose up and killed the Egyptian and buried him in the sand, thinking they'd get the picture. I am your leader, a murderer. <laughs> well, that's the only kind of leadership you knew, kill what you don't like. So sometimes you do have leadership, but it's probably wrong. So you have to relearn things, even as Saul or Paul of Tarsus. He had to relearn what he knew. And so it backfires on him, so he has to flee because the Pharaoh hears that his nephew, Moses, or his cousin, had just killed a fellow Egyptian. Moses flees, and he ends up spending 40 years unlearning Egyptian leadership. And God wisely puts him chasing sheep around the back of the desert. He leaves palaces. He leaves treasure cities to go smell like sheep. You know, you wake up like sheep, you lay down like sheep. You eat with sheep, you smell like sheep. And every once in a while, you kill a sheep and eat the sheep. That's what God did because he had to unlearn worldly leadership and begin to understand what it means to lead dumb things, people. You can't kill them. You have to love them. We all know that sheep are the dumbest animal on the planet. And the Lord Jesus Christ called us sheep. My sheep know my voice. He said, my little dumb ones. <laughs> I'm included in there. I'm not calling you dumb. He called us. Sheep are the only animal on the planet that can be lost a mile from home. Sounds like Christians this morning. They know how to get to the bar. They know how to get to the club. They know how to get to the movie place. Well, I guess Netflix is the thing anymore. They know how to get to the restaurant. They know how to get uh, to, to the grocery store, but they don't know how to get to their church a mile from home. 
Amen. So he spent the next 40 years herding sheep. Even after his appointment to leader of the nation of Israel, he continues to learn how to more accurately lead. Now, let me remind you real quick before we move on. He, God said, God told him, I want you to lead. And five times Moses argued with him. He was very reluctant to. I'm convinced he was afraid of failing. I'm convinced Moses was afraid he was going to repeat the 40-year murder, 40-year-old murder. I'm sure his heart said, you don't get it. I've already tried this once. It doesn't work. I did everything I knew to do, and it failed. And so he keeps giving God in Exodus chapter 2 and 3, he keeps giving God excuse after excuse why he can't do it. He's reluctant. He's fearful. He doesn't want to fail God. He knew it came upon him in Egypt to be a leader, but rather than saying, Lord, how do I do this? He took it upon his own way to try to lead Israel into a rebellion against the Egyptians, which is not what God was saying. And so he's fearful here. So when the Lord appears to him again, he says, you don't understand. I, I, he comes up with these five excuses and it really angers the Lord. The Lord will tolerate ignorance and, and excuses to a point and then you will grieve him, you will frustrate him and then you'll provoke him. And so the Lord says, fine, here comes your brother now. He'll be your translator and you'll be to him a mouthpiece and he'll be to them a God which really set off the whole idolatry thing in Egypt and Israel. It wasn't a good thing. Even after his appointment to leader of the nation of Israel, Moses continues to learn how to more accurately lead. Jethro corrects him. God corrects him. He goes and gets help from Joshua, Aaron, and her have to help him. He's always improving his leadership style. He's always having troubles and difficulties with the people. And yet when God called him, he had yet to work out any of these problems. It just lets you know he was not the perfect leader when God picked him. He was not the perfect leader when they walked across the Red Sea. He was always being perfected. So we have to keep that in mind that we're not going to be perfect when God uses us. We're going to get better. A couple years ago, well, two years ago now or something, I taught Lydia how to use the water fountain. And my wife said, why would you do that? You know she's going to get in trouble for it. And I said, yeah, and I'll probably have to swat her. And I, she said, why would you do that? I said, why would God call me to preach and then I get in trouble for preaching? It's part of life. God calls me to pastor and I make lots of mistakes pastoring and I get in trouble. Is that unfair of God? It's part of it. If you and I don't realize that the things God calls us to do, we're going to fail at and it's part of it. If we don't understand that, we'll never try to fulfill what God calls us to do. We'll stay in a corner, terrified we're going to disappoint him. But I fully knew when I taught, taught my daughter how to use the water fountain, she would use it to get in trouble. But that doesn't excuse the fact she still must learn how to use a water fountain. And at some point, she'll learn how to properly use it. But if we're always terrified we're going to fail, God will never step out to do anything. So you see with Moses, he was ever learning. Jethro was correcting him. God was correcting him. At one point, he was so frustrated. He said, Lord, if you love me, kill me. That's not a perfect leader. That's somebody who wants to die. That's, that's a depressed president. But he was still what, still what God wanted. This willingness to eagerly and humbly overcome ignorance caused God to call him the meekest man upon the face of the earth. Ignorance is not bliss. Ignorance will destroy your life. Ignorance of the law does not excuse you from it. Ignorance from knowledge does not excuse you from the ramifications of lacking knowledge. We cannot be Middle Tennesseans and bury our head in the sand and say, well, I was born ignorant, I was raised ignorant, I got a degree in ignorant, and that's just okay with me. There is a selfish, foolish pride in this region over ignorance. Ignorance. 
It is not a good thing. Moses was constantly stomping it out in his life because he loved God's people. He said, I need help. I don't know how to do this. And yet you've called me to do this. So don't follow that whole redneck or ignorant statement. Ignorance is bliss because it's not bliss. It costs you. It costs you. There's a difference between ignorance and stupidity. Ignorance is you don't know. But ignorance becomes stupidity when you realize I don't know and I don't want to do anything about it. That's stupid. I think we see the difference. All of us are ignorant. But some of us have an ignorant attitude about us and others of us have an exceptional wise attitude. Wisdom says, I recognize ignorance in my life. I'm going to fix it. Foolishness says, I recognize ignorance in my life and I'm going to exalt it. This region brags on its ignorance. Well, what is that Fandango thing right there? I ain't never seen nothing like that. That's stupid. That's, that's, that's highfalutin. I don't need that. All I need is an abacus. Don't need a calculator. Get my abacus out. Might as well pull your socks off and do mathematics with your socks off. Count your toes, all 12 of them. <laughs> this willingness to eagerly and humbly overcome ignorance caused God to call him the meekest man upon the face of the earth. We have a fruit of the spirit called meekness. If that spirit works in our life, if that fruit works in our life, we will hate ignorance. We will not like it. Nothing wrong with saying, look, I don't know what you're talking about. Could you please inform me? But don't, don't look down upon people that know more than you. Don't exalt your ignorance over their experience. Don't exalt your ignorance over their wisdom. Don't exalt your ignorance over their know-how. Their life is better because they know how. Amen. All right, let's move on here. Deborah, she was second best. She was not God's choice to lead Israel. If you know the story, uh, Barak was called to be the judge of Israel at that time, the governor, the military leader. But he, he was terrified, so he tucked tail and ran to Kadesh Naphtali, which was a uh, city of refuge. That's where the sissies went, or the murderers won. And so God had to raise somebody up, so he raised up Deborah. And Deborah was able to fulfill only half of the judge's role our job title, job description. The judges, in the book of Judges, they were twofold. They, they helped Israel when they had disagreements, the Israelites. So they were like a judge. They'd sit on a seat of judgment and they would help Israel with their disagreements and their, you know, whatever their problems were. But they would also lead military battles. Every person, every judge uh, was a brutal military leader except for Deborah. Every judge, in, you had Ehud who killed a, a king with a dagger through his fat belly. He pulled the dagger out. He was he was left-handed, so he strapped a dagger in his right thigh. This is uh, Judges chapter 2, I think. So he went to go see this fat king who was terrorizing the Israelites, and he shut the door. He said, I have a word for you. So he shuts the door, and they lock it, and the king says, what's that? What's that? And he said, right here. He pulls the dagger out, shoves it so far into his fat gut, the fat swallowed the dagger. He couldn't get it out. And so then Ehud lays him down and says, I'll be back with you. And he goes and opens the door and says, don't disturb the king. He's using the bathroom. That's what he did. Read it. Judges. Deborah, and then, of course, Samson was a brutal military leader, as was Gideon. These people destroyed God's enemies. Not Deborah, though. She, all she could do was sit on the seat of judgment and help Israel with their you know, political issues and their little discrepancies. And now his goat kicked my kid in the face. Now the eyes are cross-eyed. And, and, that's what she did. No, no. She helped sit on the seat. 
<laughs> well, turn the kid around, kick him in the back of the head. Maybe they'll go straight. <laughs> Deborah was not equipped to fully lead Israel as a male judge would have been. The full responsibilities would have included military service. But when no one would step up to lead Israel, Deborah was able to arise as a mother and as a wise leader and judge Israel locally until Barak could be talked into leading Israel militarily. So you see with her, she was a prophetess, but a prophetess isn't a national leader. She was not trained to lead, but she arose to the occasion when her husband, excuse me, when the man wouldn't. In marriages in America, we see that. Husbands are supposed to lead, but when the husband is a Barak with his tail tucked and he's off fleeing to his refuge, usually his career, his Kadesh Naphtali, then the mama has to arise and do all the work, except she's not equipped to do all of it. She can make wise decisions. She can help steer the home, but she is not the military leader who can beat off the family or the enemies of the family, who can fight them off. And that's why so many marriages are upside down and so many kids are goofy because dad, dad refuses to be dad. Did you know to be a dad, it takes work? Did you know to be a dad, you got to go to bed late and wake up early? Did you know to be a dad, you have to have a voice? You can't run to your city of refuge called your job or your buddies, or your online game, and let Deborah lead when she's not equipped to. You've got to have a strong voice and a strong vision. So there's Deborah. She wasn't trained to lead, but she stepped up and benefited Israel until Barak could find a backbone. All right, now let's look at Barak. I call him cowardly and reluctant. His name actually means to shout. Are you sure? Maybe they cut his tongue out. Maybe it's more like a grunt. <laughs> Barak was called to leadership, but terrified of the responsibilities. Yet God still called him. Do you think God did not know when he visited Barak and said, go lead my people? God didn't know he was going to tuck tail and run? Of course he did. He's God. God knew he was, he was calling a sissy, but it didn't change what God wanted. And God's called every one of us, even if we're sissy or cowardly, or afraid, or have our excuses. He still has called us. And he knows the response we were going to give him before he even called us, but he still called us. With Barak, he tucked tail and he fled to Kadesh Naphtali, Kadesh of Naphtali, the, 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 um, the tribe, hoping to avoid obeying the call of God. You can't run from the call of God. It, uh, Pastor Vaughn had a series of messages years ago about Jonah. And Jonah fleeing the call of God. And he said, when, when the preacher, when the leader of God, when God's man flees the call, it makes it miserable for everybody. And he would always say, even the heathen can tell when the Christian's out of the will of God. On that boat, the heathen said, arise, seek your God. Why? And then they said, why would you do this to us? Why won't you serve your God? Heathen preaching to the prophet. And here this man, this Barak, he fled. He refused to step up his game. He fled. He knew the word of God because he knew where the city of refuge was. He was just terrified of doing what he was called to do. He was afraid for whatever reason. We don't know what his issue was. He was just afraid. If you don't fulfill the call of God, whether it's leading your children or leading your wife or leading the job or, or doing what you know to do, your life will be miserable. You'll watch the blessings of God dry up. Not that God wants to curse you, but you, God's not going to bless rebellion. God's not going to bless unfaithfulness. God's not going to bless insubordination. God is not going to bless the coward. He'll encourage the coward, but at some point, the cur encouragement has to produce courage. 
God will not bruise or, or crush the bruised reed, nor will he quench the smoking flax, which refers to the discouraged heart and the wounded person. He will breathe encouragement, but the reason you encourage somebody is to put them, put courage in them. At some point, you can't encourage someone because they just don't want it, in which case you grieve the Lord. He will move on and find somebody else. Amen. Amen. Or your wife rises up to do the job. Barak finally submitted to God and became a leader as long as Deborah went with him. Wow. He, he needed to thank God for a wife. This wasn't his wife. She had her own husband. He, he was such a coward. He needed the prophetess to go with him. This was not the will of God. But Deborah relented. And we know it wasn't the will of God because she said, nevertheless, because you have been so skeptical and so stiff-necked, you will not get the enemy of the Lord as your honor to kill. The Lord will give it to a woman. So God honored a woman when he should have honored Barak. Barak had a serious woman issue. And it speaks to us a lot to this day. Deborah was still called a mother. She wasn't called a Jezebel. She wasn't called a lesbian. She wasn't called a bra burner. She was called a mother over Israel. And Barak still had issues. His reluctance to lead cost him the honor of killing Israel's enemy, Sisera. So notice the Lord called him, even though he was cowardly and reluctant. And the Lord, you know, he's God. He knows everything. He's going to call this man. And the second he calls this man, this man's going to quit and run. But the Lord still called him. Lord, are you dumb? No, I just want what I want. Lord, we sometimes we say, Lord, are you dumb for calling me? No, I just want what I want. He calls us to make us better. And you should be thankful he calls you. Because nobody else is calling you, and nobody else can make you better. So it ought to honor you. And you just have to know if God calls you, he's going to equip you and, and, and strengthen you and train you to be a leader. He's not calling you to watch you fail. None of these people failed. Did Noah fail? Nope. Did Moses fail? Nope. Did Abraham fail? Nope. Did Deborah fail? Nope. Did Barak fail? No. None of these people failed. So what were they so scared of? the unknown, or maybe work. Maybe they needed that extra four hours of ESPN in the evening because, baby, I got to unwind. It's, it's been a hard day sitting at my computer station. It, honey, I drank so much cough, coffee today. My bladder, I, honey, could you just bring me some sweet tea? It, it's been a hard day, you know, in the air-conditioned office. I, I just need to unwind. I, I I had to walk around that office five times. Lunch traffic was horrible. It was so stressful here in Middle Tennessee. And these, oh, Charlie's was, I about had a meltdown. It's been a rough day, sweetie. Can, I, can you just get the kids away from me and let me unwind here with some sports center? Sad, sad, sad. <laughs> Gideon, he's one of my favorites, but I call him inexperienced reluctant with low self-esteem. Study that, Genesis 6, or Judges 6. Gideon was, terif- was, a ter- was terrified when he was drafted into God's leadership program. Terrified. We find him hiding out in an abandoned wine press, threshing wheat. His reluctance stemmed from a low self-esteem issue. He said, my tribe is the least of all the tribes. My family in that tribe is the least of all the families in the tribe. And I'm the runt of the litter. That's self-esteem issues. 
He already sees himself as a worm. He basically said, in all of Israel, I'm the worst. And you visit me? And can't you see I'm scared? So how was he born with leadership? Did he have a strong personality? I don't even think he had any charisma. He doesn't, he doesn't have anybody helping him. He's like probably a homeschool kid there threshing wheat. I think they were all homeschooled back in those days. But it wasn't out of fear. You know, it was out of that's just how they did things. <laughs> you, don't, you don't even see him have any friends. And yet God still called him to lead. His reluctance stemmed, stemmed from a self-esteem issue. Gideon was raised to farm Israel's soil, not lead its men into battle. That's what his upbringing was. His, reluctance, his reluctant obedience built a sure-footed confidence that made him a great military leader. Notice he did obey, though it was reluctant, but it built him a very sure-footed confidence. And I always love to quote and tell the story. When he was going out to battle, one city wouldn't give him any bread or water for his soldiers. Just 300, mind you. He said, when I'm done chasing our enemies, I'm going to come back and I'm going to tear down that tower. Then he went to the next town. He said, we're hungry. Can we have some, some bread and some water? They said, no, no, we don't think we should. He said, fine. You're, and the guy said, our elders won't let us give you any. He said, when I'm done, I'm going to take your elders and I'm going to teach them with briars and thorns. And he kept his word with both. He tore down one city's tower and the other city, he gathered their city elders together and he whipped them with whips of thorns and briars just because they wouldn't show him any hospitality. It's a big step up from being a coward. When God calls you to lead, it's because he knows you don't have it about you, but you need it. So if you obey God, you get it. We as Americans have been taught to find our skill and walk in that. Even in Charismatica, we've been taught to find our spiritual gift, and that's the only way God's going to use us. Stupid. Because it violates the scripture. It does not yet appear what we shall become. We don't know what we shall become, but if we obey God, he'll, he knows what we shall become. We're still in America trying to tell God how we're going to serve him. All these men were kind of doing that. This is not how I'm going to serve you. And it angered God until they finally said, all right, Lord, uncle, I give. Maybe we should say, Father, I give. I'll submit. Gideon was able to go from farmer to judge of Israel by simply obeying God. Do it afraid if you have to. I, I cannot tell you how many things I've done as a pastor that I wept over, especially the first two or three years, cried over and just almost puked over. So nervous, so terrified, so scared in private. But the Lord wasn't going to budge, and I knew it had to be done. And I just said, Lord, I just want you to know what I'm about to do for you, I hate. I don't want to do this, but I know I have to. And you know what? Every time I came, eventually you learn, because even, even monkeys can be trained. Eventually you learn, I'm probably going to have to do this a thousand more times, so I might as well suck it up and learn to like it. And even when there's new things, I say, this is just like the lions and the bears I had to kill five years ago. And I hated that, and I hate this, but I'll get over it, and I'll learn to like it, because I'll have to do it again, and probably get to teach other people how to do it. But when you let your comfort zone define how you serve God, you won't. You will not serve God, nor will you be called a servant of God, nor will you be called a leader. You'll be called an American. And that's not what we're aiming for. We're aiming to become great leaders in this kingdom. Jephthah, I got to run through these. Inexperienced, rejected, but forgiving. 
Not many folks know anything about Jephthah. Jephthah is an awesome story of the book of Judges. Jephthah was the son of Gilead. Gilead had multiple wives, but Jephthah was born from a prostitute. So apparently Gilead went and had a fling with a prostitute. So here's this great leader in Israel, but he has a son by a prostitute. And he was a mighty man of valor, but his whole family rejected him because he was the son of a harlot. So they run him off until the, uh, the God's enemies start thwarting them. So then they say, hey, didn't we have a half-brother that knew how to swing a sword? Yeah, the harlot's son. Go, uh, go ask him if he might help us. So he had to come back and forgive them for totally rejecting. They rejected him so bad, he had to go live in the land of Tob. You know, you, you've been run out of town when you have to go live in Tob. That's worse than Baxter. Maybe, but not by much. And so they send for him, brother. Oh, now you call me brother. Come help us. You are the strongest of us. And he had to forgive them. But he still had no experience leading people. He's a loner. And yet he came back and became a mighty judge of Israel and whipped them. He had a very confident talk with one of the kings. The king said, that's my land. He said, it's been vacant for 200 years. How come you haven't claimed it till now? He said, no, wrong. It's my land. You come against us, I'll kill all of you. <laughs> and that's what they did. But he had to forgive. He had no experience as a leader. He was a reject, a loner, a tobite. And he had to come back. Sometimes you have to forgive the people you have to lead. If you, don't, if you can't forgive, you eventually run off everybody you're supposed to lead. You got to forgive your wives, forgive your children, forgive your husband, forgive your employees for being late again or stealing from the paycheck. You got to forgive folks because they're going to let you down. Forgiveness is a, a, a critical key ingredient to, to leadership. Uh, Jephthah was rejected by his family for being the son of a harlot and was cast out. He fled the land of Tob and dwelt there. Though he was a mighty warrior, he had to overcome unforgiveness and betrayal to lead a people that had once rejected him. And the Bible says that Jephthah was a man of faith in Hebrews 11. Jephthah. King Saul, inexperienced but humble. Uh, how many kings had Israel had before Saul? None. So you mean he gets to pioneer something that's never been done before. So there's no school for this. There's no school of leadership. There's no school of kingdomness. There's no school of kingly, kingly leadership. So he has no leadership. In fact, he gets anointed king when he's out looking for donkeys. He's a farmer. Again, we're proving leaders aren't born. They're made. Saul was chosen to be Israel's first king, not because he graduated top of his class at King's College, but because he was humble in his own eyes and obeyed God. Israel had never had a king before. Saul would be pioneering a new position for the nation of Israel. He was humble in his own eyes. He was a strong young man, and he was a hard worker. And apparently that's all it takes to be king because God helps you with the rest. But no leadership here. I hopefully we're encouraging your faith to realize you don't have to be awesome right now to be a leader. You don't have to go to some great school. God, if God asks you to lead, he fully understands you don't know how to do all of it. If you knew how to do all of it, he wouldn't pick you because you would get all the credit. You would get all the glory. But he's going to pick someone who doesn't know what they're doing so they'll fall on their knees and say, oh God, I don't know what I'm doing. Why would you pick me? And the Lord will say, because you don't know what you're doing. 
but you have a humble heart, an eager heart, and a hungry heart, and I can work with that. But there's 15,000 more uh, men more exceedingly wise and beautiful and intelligent than me. And the Lord says, and that's why I haven't picked them. I pick you. Because when you, I'm done with you, you know who to give credit to. If I were to use them, they would have to think, well, maybe it's me. Maybe it was my education. Maybe it was all my master's degrees. Maybe it was all the years I worked as a CEO. Maybe it was all those years I had in the corporate realm. And the Bible says the Lord uses the foolish things to confound the wise. King David, uh, determined and passionate. King David was not born into leadership. He was born into shepherding. But one act of faithfulness after another prepared him to lead. Life itself trained him. Shepherding taught him how to kill the enemies of the flock. Killing Goliath gained access to King Saul. Serving King Saul gained him favor and opportunity and enemies. David began to lead men. He didn't lead men until the king wanted to kill him. What a horrible time to become a leader when you're running. It's easy to run for your life when there's just one of you. Now he's having to run for his life when there's 400 of them. That's just like God to kind of put you in the school of leadership when your life is on the line. You don't just have one guy wanting to kill you. You have the king and his armies at his disposal trying to kill you. David began to lead men in the cave of Dulam, but these were broken men. So it's not like you're even getting to lead Navy SEALs or even Boy Scouts who've been trained by the troop mom. You got discontented, distressed, and depressed men, and this is who the Lord gets to throw you into the training school with. God chooses dumb or foolishness, as King James says, to confound smarty pants. They were drawn to the king's anointing because David had been anointed king by now. They were drawn to that anointing, but they would all learn how to be great together. They grew together. You don't see greatness in David. You just see faithfulness. You just see courage. You don't see leadership. Who would have looked at a little shepherd boy who brings cheese and milk to his brothers on the front line and says, that's your next king? Doesn't make any sense. None. Esther, this one is very scary. Reluctant and fearful. We've seen that a couple times now. Esther offers us the most humbling of all passages concerning reluctant leaders. She had no say in marrying King Ahasuerus. He selected her. When Haman's plan to exterminate the Jews was proclaimed, Haman was one of the King Ahasuerus, that's King Xerxes I, one of King Xerxes' right-hand men. Haman hated the Jews, specifically Mordecai, because Mordecai would never honor him. Mordecai was a Jew. Mordecai was Esther's uncle or cousin. But he was much older, so he raised Esther in Babylon, Persia now. Because Mordecai dishonored Haman, Haman wanted to kill the Jews. So Haman talks Xerxes into issuing a proclamation to exterminate all the Jews throughout all of Persia. Persia wasn't the only place there was Jews. Persia was a massive kingdom, and there were Jews everywhere. They were being used. You know, it's the kingdom. You have a bunch of Jews here. They're good at this. We need that over here in China. So you send off a bunch of Jews to China. What is now China? We have some back in Judea. So you send some Jews to Judea. So this proclamation goes throughout the whole land on this day. We're killing all the Jews. We're just going to mass genocide. It's just a demonic attack. Same spirit that was on Hitler. Same spirit moving in the earth today. Yeah. So when Haman's plan to exterminate the Jews was proclaimed, Mordecai commanded his niece to rise up and do something about it. So the Lord doesn't even command her to lead. Mordecai does. But she's a submitted gal. 
Esther's reluctance to the approach uh, to approach the king fell on deaf ears. So she says, I, I can't do this. Uh, I haven't seen the king in 30 days. There's no promise I'll get to see the king. And everybody knows if you approach the king without his permission, he'll kill you. That's just the law of the land. She said, I guess I could take a chance and walk in there, but if he does not extend his scepter to me, I'll be beheaded. I'll be killed, however they killed her. And Mordecai basically says, so what? What's your problem? So listen to what Mordecai, what a loving uncle. (laughs) Then Mordecai commanded to answer Esther. They're writing letters back and forth. Think not with thyself that thou shalt escape in the king's house more than all the Jews. Don't think you're going to escape this extermination. For if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. God will use someone else. But thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed. I kind of think Mordecai was prophesying. I think he was speaking for Jehovah God. And who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? That's where we get that famous, such a time as this. Uh, Did you realize that you were called to be your dad for such a time as this? You're called to be a husband for such a time as this? And do not think that you shall escape if you fail to be dad or husband. Do not think you shall escape destruction. And God will raise up somebody else to deliver your family in your place. This is terrifying to me. If I don't lead this church, if I don't lead my wife, if I don't lead my my kids, this passage promises destruction may fall. And God will raise up somebody else in my place. This is, that's why I call it very sobering. You've got to rise up and be a leader. If we don't rise up and do, God will find someone else and we may end up getting passed over. Now, real quick, Nehemiah, let's finish here. This is our last story. Inexperienced, but passionate. Nehemiah began his ministry as a cupbearer. Whoop-de-doo. A cupbearer. Here, king, I tasted it. I haven't died yet. Should be safe for you to drink. Well, thank you, Nehemiah. Have I complained? This is, this is the other part of the cupbearer's job in Persia, to listen to the king complain. He was just a confidant. So the king would eat the food that Nehemiah had tasted and not died from, and then Nehemiah stands there, as the cupbearer would, and he would complain to him. So he became kind of like a trusted friend, though he's a slave. Have I complained to you lately about what it's like to run the Persian Empire? No, sir, you haven't. Let me tell you. Here we go again. You got to know at one point he said, please let this be poisonous. Please let this be poisonous. Please let this be poisonous. Please let this be. Oh, man. Here you go, king. (laughs) Nehemiah began his ministry as a cupbearer, tasting the Persian king's food and acting as a sounding board. His desire to see his beloved city's walls rebuilt catapulted him into the governor's seat. What governing experience did he have? None. All he had was a desire to see Jerusalem walls rebuilt. And the king says, well, if you want to do it, why don't you go govern Judea? Okay. Help. (laughs) As the Persian governor over Judea, he led the tribe of Israel or Judah. He led the tribe of Judah through its greatest renaissance and revival since King David. Goes from a cupbearer and a sounding board to the leader of a renaissance and spiritual revival, the greatest in over a thousand years. Not bad, but where was his training of leadership? Nowhere. Was he born into it? No. Did it sound like he had any charisma? Sound like a kind of emotional crying because you hear the walls are burned? Grow up. 
but it motivated him. I want you to see from all of these stories, none of these people were born to lead. They were called to, but they didn't have this natural thing about them. They were fearful, they were reluctant, and yet the calling of God equipped them and helped them. And they they all had one thing in common, only one thing, obedience. And that's what made them, these men and women of faith, we know them as. The only thing that separates us from them is obedience. The only thing that separates a good leader from a non-leader is obedience. And along the way, you just pioneer and you learn to do things better. As long as you're afraid of failing, you always will. If you're not afraid of failing, you always will, but you'll get better as you do it. Amen? Successful people and failing people both fail. But what makes successful people successful is they just learn from their failings. May we be inspired to take our place among God's great leaders. Amen. Father, we thank you for Sunday school. I thank you that you would raise all of us up to be these great leaders in this kingdom, whether it's over our families, our children, our husbands, our wives, our our employees, our students, whatever you've called us to do, may we lead with great faith and great power. In Jesus' name we thank you. Amen.